The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Andrew Newberg now presents his lecture, Your Brain on God, the Implications for Mental Health. When I was invited to get to, to present, uh, the, the field is, uh, of neurotheology, if you will, um, is really a, a massive field. And uh, on one hand, that's great. It gives me a lot of things to do for the next uh, 25, 30 years of my life. But, um, but also, uh, it's sometimes a bit challenging when trying to distill it down to something that's relevant for a given group of individuals or to talk about it in a specific way. So I'm going to try to hit some some important ideas and some interesting findings that we have uh, generated over the last uh, 20, 25 years, thinking about this in the context of religious and spiritual beliefs and practices and experiences, uh, how this intersects with the brain, uh, how this intersects with mental health. And um, given the, uh, the background of Judaism uh, as uh, an important part of the conference, uh, also really want to tie that in uh, with some of the work that I've done in that area as well. In fact, uh, another book that I have published recently with a colleague of mine who was a medical student. Now he's a psychiatrist here at Jefferson uh, and also an Orthodox rabbi by training. Uh, we wrote a book called The Rabbi's Brain, which talks a lot about Judaism and Jewish thought uh, and uh, and how that intersects with the brain. And, and even for those people who are not Jewish, um, what this also kind of tells us about is how we can start to look at a variety of individual traditions uh, through this lens. And so there's really just a tremendous amount of information that we can get to and uh, go through. So I'm going to try to cover as much as I can in the in the hour and uh, and hope that it is uh, relevant for each one of you, regardless of what particular perspective you take, religious or otherwise, and, and also how you think about this in the context of mental health and well-being. So we do have the frontal lobes, which are located in the front part of the brain behind the forehead, which are involved in a lot of our executive processes, help us to focus our mind, focus our attention on various you know, things that are in our environment. Uh, it's involved in language. It's also involved in our behaviors and our emotions in terms of regulating them. Along the side of the brain is our temporal lobe which houses our language areas, in fact, more towards the top of the temporal lobes. I'm not sure if you can see my arrow here. Uh, the, the sort of the junction between the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe in the back of the brain is our verbal conceptual area. And this is where language is processed, uh, where we think about things causally, where we think about things quantitatively. So a lot of very interesting uh, conceptual processes and logical processes appear to be associated with this main area. Now, deeper inside the temporal lobe, is where the limbic system is, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that's our primary emotional areas of the brain. Towards the back of the brain in the parietal lobe is what I sometimes refer to as an orientation area. This takes our sensory information and helps us to create a spatial representation of ourself and how that self relates to others and how our self relates to the world. Uh, so we'll, we'll see that come up uh, a couple more times when we talk about some of our brain scans of practices like prayer or meditation. And uh, if we go a little bit deeper into the temporal lobe, um, we have the limbic system, and that includes areas like the amygdala and the hippocampus, which are very involved in just feeling our emotions. Interestingly, the hippocampus also writes 
emotionally important events into our memory processes. So the hippocampus is very involved in memory and cognition. And, uh, and that's why if we do have very strong emotional responses, whether they be religious or spiritual or related to uh, getting married or, or, or perhaps you know, negative emotions like traumas, um, then these get deeply written into our brain and into our memory processes. So there's a lot of interrelationships going on between the emotional and the cognitive areas of the brain. Now, we can use this background of information to start to study various spiritual practices like meditation and prayer. And we have used a variety of different uh, imaging techniques, including functional MRI, fMRI, uh, PET scanning, positron emission tomography, SPECT imaging, single photon emission computed tomography, uh, EEGs, looking at the electrical changes in the brain and trying to study a variety of different practices, meditation practices, prayer practices, uh, those practices that are specific to given traditions like speaking in tongues, practices that may be more general like mindfulness, for example, uh, various rituals and so forth. And we're gonna be looking at some of these practices and the scans that, uh, that we have observed during them in just a few moments. But I think an important point here is that we have an opportunity to study a lot of these different practices using neuroimaging to explore the changes that are going on in the different parts of the brain that we were just talking about. So for example, uh, one of our early studies looked at a kind of prayer called centering prayer. This was actually a study that we did in a group of Franciscan nuns. And, uh, and so this is a more Christian-based practice. Uh, what you're seeing here is a, a SPECT scan that shows areas of activity in the brain. So the, the coloring represents the activity. The red areas are the most active, followed by the yellow, the blue, and the black. And you're looking at a, a slice of the brain, if you will. Towards the top of the brain is the frontal lobe. Towards the bottom of the brain uh, is, uh, is the, um, excuse me, towards the bottom of the, the scan here is the back of the brain. And then along the side in the temporal lobe, where I have the arrow looking at the language area, uh, that's that that's that temporal and parietal area, that verbal conceptual area we were just talking about a few moments ago. So um, this is a baseline scan. And what I'm going to do now is just toggle to the scan that occurred while the person was deep in prayer. So this is a very intense, immersive prayer. They're focusing on a particular phrase from the Bible or a particular prayer, prayer that has the goal of trying to uh, kind of connect them to God. And, uh, and that's really what um, uh, the prayer practice in this particular case is about. So this is the baseline scan. And during the prayer practice, what you see are these kind of blobs of red activity show up in the frontal lobe and also in the language area. And that made a lot of sense because the frontal lobe, as I mentioned, is involved in our ability to concentrate and focus attention. So if you're focusing attention on a prayer practice, then you might see an increase of activity in the frontal lobe. And that's exactly what we've seen in a number of different uh, prayer-based practices. The language area also becomes activated in this scan because they are doing a verbal kind of practice. They are doing prayer. So they're repeating certain st uh, statements. They're thinking about a certain prayer or a certain phrase from the Bible. It's language oriented. And that can be very different than practices that might involve focusing on the breath or perhaps focusing on an image, the image of God or perhaps a sacred object or something like that, uh, which may activate the visual areas of the brain rather than the language areas of the brain. Now, um, of course, uh, again, I want to emphasize a little bit for this particular group 
the idea of not just studying religious and spiritual practices, but to focus this to a certain extent on Judaism and Jewish thought. Um, Judaism certainly represents, or Jews in particular, represent a very unique population to study. Uh, Jews have been around for uh, many thousands of years and maintained a tradition uh, for pretty much longer than almost every other group. So there are certain unique characteristics uh, of Jewish individuals. It's a very small population relative to the rest of the human population, only about 0.2%. Uh, so uh, this allows us for very targeted investigations into thinking about uh, Jewish thought, uh, how Jewish individuals believe, how their brain and biology might be associated with specific Jewish beliefs. And what also is unique about Judaism is that uh, Jews represent not only a religious tradition, but a cultural and an ethnic background as well. So all of this is kind of wrapped up into one population, which uh, again, gives us an opportunity to explore uh, how each of these different elements may interact and, uh, and how we may be able to tease out individual uh, aspects of Judaism. So there's a lot of very interesting information here that can help us to understand the Jewish people, but also for understanding humanity as well. You can begin to extrapolate all of these different scans and the questions that we talk about um, to any tradition. So whether you're taking care of individuals who are Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and so forth, uh, this ultimately can apply or be applied to any tradition as well. And, uh, and this really represents a unique opportunity for the use of this concept of neurotheology, the idea of how do we understand the relationship between our brain and our religious selves. So I want to spend just at least one slide talking about neurotheology in a little bit more detail for those of you who have not heard this term before. Um, I think it's something, it's a concept and it's a, it basically is a field of study, which is growing in interest, in interest and influence in terms of thinking about this relationship. So neurotheology very simplistically refers to the field of study that links neurosciences with religion and theology. Now, I think there's a couple of very important points that I like to stress about what this term means. And we could certainly think of other terms that might be similar, like um, psychospirituality or biotheology. But for whatever reasons, neurotheology seems to be the term that seems to have stuck. Um, but there are a couple of important points. So one is that, um, to me, it really is a, a true two-way street. So it is not just neuroscience kind of, you know, being reductionistic about theology and religion. It is not a theological perspective or stance on what neuroscience should tell us, but it is really about using these two forces of humanity, the, the religious and spiritual on one side and the scientific and technological on the other side to help us understand who we are as human beings. So to me, it really needs to be a true two-way street. And with that in mind, um, I always like to say that the science must be kept rigorous and the religion or the religious aspects must be kept religious, meaning that if we ask people to come in and we're going to do a brain scan while they are doing a kind of prayer, um, you know, if we if we take all of the religiousness out of the prayer, then we're not really studying prayer. And so we need to do our best to really keep the spiritual practices and experiences and so forth. Uh, as, as natural as possible, as realistic, as um, genuine as possible. And, and of course, this raises a lot of very interesting methodological challenges. Uh, I published a book about 10 years ago now called The Principles of Neurotheology. And, we, and I talk a lot in that book about what are the various challenges to science that we need to keep in mind uh, and challenges to theology as well about how do we bring this information 
uh, into those different perspectives. And I also think that the neuro side and the theology side need to be defined fairly broadly. So the neuro side includes neuroscience, but it also includes psychology. It includes uh, anthropology. It includes medicine, all the ways that we get at how our brain and how our, our psyche are actually working in the context of spiritual and religious ideas. And with that last statement in mind, theology also needs to be defined fairly broadly so that it is not just theology proper, but we're talking about various religious and spiritual ideas, beliefs, practices, rituals, and so forth, all the different ways in which individuals, in which human beings can be religious or spiritual. So on one hand, um, we can do a lot of brain scans, and that's very, very important. But uh, in our book, The Rabbi's Brain, we realize, as we have realized throughout all of our work in neurotheology, that it is fundamentally important to ask a lot of questions about what people really mean or really feel when it comes to their religious and spiritual attitudes. In fact, all of these terms that I'm using, terms like religion and spirituality, uh, other types of uh, uh, ideas such as um, soul, um, God, uh, mind, consciousness, and so forth. Uh, all of these are concepts which we need to think about how we best define them. And, and how do we get those definitions? Um, do we go to uh, the, you know, the great scholars, the great scientists, the great theologians, the great rabbis, and so forth, and, and find out from them? Uh, certainly that's one direction to take. But we also need to ask people. We need to ask the regular person how they feel. And so as part of our book, The Rabbi's Brain, we decided to create a survey uh, of uh, people to ask them basic questions about how they are, how they think. And we directed this at rabbis since that was the topic of our book. But again, we could extrapolate these same questions to clergy of other traditions, but also to the general population. How does one engage their emotions, their thoughts, uh, what do they actually believe? How do they think about different rituals and so forth? And we need this phenomenological assessment to be able to understand what's going on in the brain itself and how that relates to the brain processes and how it relates to psychological states. And in fact, uh, to me, one of the real uh, uh, important uh, connections here is relating this whole field of neurotheology to the field of psychology because in a similar kind of way, we're trying to get at things that are very subjective. We're trying to get at how people feel. Um, there's no way that I know how some how depressed somebody is or how anxious somebody is unless I ask them. And even then, I never truly know unless I've experienced it myself. And similarly, if we say to somebody, you know, how religious do you feel? How spiritual do you feel? You know, how do we how do we get at that? How do we quantify that? What kinds of questions are good questions? Once again, these are methodological challenges to the science, to the to the to the philosophical and phenomenological aspect of things. So a lot of really exciting things for us to think about. And, and I, I, I'm hoping that you'll find uh, at least a little bit of the, the survey results that we got. I'm going to talk about them briefly here. And if you are interested, uh, the book, The Rabbi's Brain, talks about them in far more detail. Um, but uh, we did survey about 160 rabbis, so a, a fairly nice sampling. Uh, so we asked them all different kinds of things. Uh, you know, how optimistic are they? How talkative are they? How introverted, extroverted? Uh, even questions about, you know, did they always hold these beliefs? Did they always want to be a rabbi, for example? Did they have mystical experiences? And even some of the big theological questions about 
you know, do you believe in God? And if so, you know, how, what, what do you think God is or how do you understand that concept? Uh, so these are just some interesting graphs of, of this. Um, we asked uh, how guided rabbis were by their emotions in terms of engaging their religious and spiritual selves. And you can see here that, um, that at least about 50% said a moderate to a significant amount. Uh, these traits are associated with the limbic system. These are our emotions, feelings of love, joy, awe, and so forth. And so how we start to think about the emotional aspects of our religious and spiritual beliefs becomes very important and very connected to what's going on in the brain. But yet again, as we have noticed in almost all of our research, there's always the other side as well. So, you know, we could start to ask some interesting questions about those people who don't actually think about using their emotions very much. Uh, and so that was still, you know, about maybe 15 percent said a little or not at all. Uh, are guided by their emotions. So how are they guided? How do they start to think about things? Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, this is where we might uh, think about what's going on in the brain itself. So this was another study of a prayer practice where we were looking specifically at the limbic system. This is where the arrow is pointing now in the temporal lobe and uh, looking at areas like the amygdala and the hippocampus right there. This is the baseline scan. And during the prayer state, you can see that there's a great deal more activity, more red activity here. And, and I should also add parenthetically that all of these colors have quantitative values behind them. So it's not just me saying, oh, it looks like it's brighter, but there's actually numbers that we can quantify and um, talk about statistical significance. But the point here is that during a lot of prayer practices, we do see increases in the emotional centers of the brain. It's deeply meaningful for the person. It turns on these areas of the brain. And that's part of where the emotional you know, connection between uh, the brain's emotional areas of the brain, I should say, they make that emotional connection with the religious and spiritual practices uh, and experiences that they have. Now we asked if rabbis are guided by their various thoughts and cognitive processes. This is in that, that verbal conceptual area. Uh, here you can see even you know, far more, I would say you know, over 90% said a moderate to significant amount. Uh, so we see that rabbis in particular are, are deeply guided by their thoughts and their rational uh, thought processes. Uh, is this universal for all traditions? Is this universal for, I mean, if we ask these same questions to a group of Catholic priests, if we asked a, a group of Buddhist monks, um, you know, would we see the same kind of results here, both in terms of the emotional content uh, as well as the, co uh, the uh, cognitive content? And what about just going again to the general population asking these same kind of questions? Uh, how are they matching up? Is there something unique? Is this are these findings unique to rabbis or are they are, are they common to many other groups, many other populations that are either religious or spiritual or of other traditions? Uh, how much are they guided by experiences? Again, very, very high percentages of individuals, about 90 percent uh, of the rabbis said that they were guided by the experiences that they had. Uh, again, though, there's always still that, you know, 10 or 15 percent who said, no, not really. And so that in and of itself is interesting for us to be able to look at. Now, our cognitive processes, uh, excuse me, our experiential processes uh, are perhaps uh, related to another very central structure in the brain called the thalamus, which is where these two dots are. Um, the thalamus takes in a lot of sensory information, particularly from our ears and our eyes, and helps different parts of our brain because it's such a central area of our brain 
to coordinate our uh, our sensory information and help us to kind of think through and experience the world. Well, during various practices, we see significant shifts of activity in the thalamus. And you can see here at baseline, um, this individual had a relative balance of activity in the thalamus. Both sides are kind of red, but during the practice, there's a shift. Only one side now becomes much more active. So this may have something to do with the sensorial experience that occurs as the result of doing a religious or spiritual practice. And we could begin to look at this. We could see how these findings in the brain match up with what the people are describing for us. So a lot of very exciting possibilities. And, and again, you know, flipping this into the discussion about mental health, um, I think that this also shows, well, how can these practices be related to mental health, either in terms of helping people to maintain their mental health, or can they turn to these practices uh, and, and their, their religious and spiritual beliefs as a way of helping them to deal with various uh, emotional issues, depression, anxiety, and so forth. Uh, how can we think about this in a, in, a, in a context that looks at the potential beneficial or even therapeutic effect of doing these different kinds of practices or engaging the religious or spiritual side of the person? Now, uh, other questions that we asked, for example, we asked rabbis about their mystical experiences. And in our survey, uh, about two thirds of the rabbis did report having mystical experiences. Um, now, we've already talked a little bit about some of the changes that we see in the brain uh, with regard to different practices. And uh, I mentioned before the parietal lobe located in the back of the brain that might be associated with decreased activity because normally this does help us to create our spatial representation of the self. And during a, a very intense spiritual experience, we have observed decreases of activity in this area, which we think are associated with that loss of the sense of self, a feeling of oneness, a feeling of connectedness, uh, and, and maybe even a, a feeling of connection to something that goes beyond just the pure natural experience of the world, something supernatural. Um, I will say that when we looked at the survey, the description of having had a mystical experience was more common in reform and reconstructionist rabbis, but certainly was also there in orthodox as well as uh, conservative. And different, they, they offered different descriptions. And we said, well, tell us a little bit about the experience. Um, some felt the sense of oneness with everything. Some felt a connection with God. Um, some felt uh, a connection to some kind of that there, uh, there was something spiritual as like in a dream, which in and of itself is very interesting theologically, since um, certainly in uh, the Torah, there are many examples of spiritual visions and so forth that occur within dream states. Uh, so, you know, a lot of very interesting possibilities here again, when we start to think about how we address these questions. And as I mentioned, um, when we look at the parietal lobe, which is now where this arrow is pointing, we can see that during the baseline state of this individual in a very intense state of meditation, uh, excuse me, this is the baseline state. And then when we look at their uh, brain in a very intense state of meditation, we can see that this parietal lobe becomes much less active. It, it, it drops into the yellow colors. And we, again, we think that this is associated with the loss of the sense of self, the loss of the spatial representation of the world around us, a sense of oneness with things. Uh, so this is a very common finding that we have seen and observed in a lot of these different kinds of practices that lead to these experiences. Uh, there are many different things that we could begin to explore and look at, both 
from a neurotheological perspective, but from a psychological perspective as well. Uh, what are a person's beliefs? Uh, are they looking at the world positively, optimistically, pessimistically? And how did the religious and spiritual beliefs along those lines relate to their psychological status? So if they believe that God is on their side, that God is there to support us, that God loves us, uh, is guiding us and so forth, do they take that into their psychological realm and feel that they are able to overcome anxieties, depressions, and so forth? Or do they feel that God may be judgmental or, or may not care? Um, in which case they're just on their own. And uh, these are the kinds of questions that have been asked to a variety of patients with different issues and problems. Uh, what, you know, how do they look at their spirituality and their spiritual well-being uh, in the context of their psychological or social well-being? Um, how is that related? You know, when we talk about uh, religious uh, beliefs and religious practices, we know that the social aspect is very, very important. Going to synagogue, being part of a prayer group, um, but we know that social interactions are also very positive for mental and physical well-being. So again, we start to see all of these cross interactions and we can look at what's going on in terms of how people engage these different aspects of Judaism uh, as part of their lives and how that may be related to their brain and how it may be related to their psyche. So all of these different ideas uh, become very relevant for us to be able to explore. And we can think about these along many different levels, ranging from the very uh, theological and even esoteric, how we think about what it says in the, in the Torah, uh, what it, uh, our various spiritual experiences, theological questions, to more practical ideas about how we believe, to very psychological and health-oriented questions as well. Now, uh, all of the scans that I've shown you so far have primarily looked at what's going on during the midst of a practice. So we're looking at a baseline scan when the person is just at rest, and then we have them do a practice and we scan them again. But what about the longer term effects? And this has, again, I think, th think some very important relevance in the context of uh, mental health, because we might ask the question, okay, if somebody uh, has depression, and, um, and they've kind of gone away from their religious or spiritual roots, uh, would it be beneficial for them to resume uh, going to synagogue, resume doing prayers, uh, resume doing other types of uh, spiritual activities? Uh, what are the long-term consequences of doing these practices? And uh, a number of our studies have actually tried to look at this longitudinal effect. Uh, we've done this looking at a variety of practices. Um, one of them was a study of a meditation practice called Kirtan Kriya, which derives out of the Kundalini Yoga tradition. And also we did a study of the Jesuit um, spiritual exercises that I, I want to touch briefly on both of these studies. So the first slide um, is from our Kirtan Kriya study. And these were individuals who were older individuals who actually were complaining of memory loss which obviously is a very common thing as people get older. So uh, this is in an older population. Also an important point that our brain is always able to change and adapt over time, even uh, when we get up into our 70s, 80s and beyond. So uh, the brain is always able to grow and develop and change. And so as people do get older, whether they're dealing with cognitive issues or emotional issues, late, late life onset depression, for example, um, these kinds of practices appear to be able to change the brain. So we're looking at four different scans from one individual. These were also individuals, I should say, who had no specific meditation background. 
The first scan, the A scan here, um, is their brain at rest. And it is their brain basically just coming in to, to see us off the street. The B scan is after we taught them how to do this particular meditation practice. It's a mantra-based practice where you repeat several sounds over and over again. You actually move your fingers with the sound. So you touch your index finger to your thumb and then your middle finger, then your ring finger, then your pinky finger in succession while you're repeating several different sounds. And as you do this, um, you do this over a period of about 12 minutes and we had them do it once a day for 12 minutes. So it's not really a very, you know, extensive kind of practice. And we did it for eight, we had them do this for eight weeks. So we taught them how to do the practice. They did it for the first time. That was the B scan. And then eight weeks later, we bring them back and we scan them at rest, which is the C scan. And then doing the, the meditation for the final time, that was the, the D scan. So a couple of really important points about this particular study. One is where the arrow is pointing, which is in the thalamus. Uh, and what you see here in this particular individual is that the thalamus was actually a little asymmetric, uh, where the arrow is pointing a little bit more active on one side than the other. But when they come back after eight weeks of practice, it looks like there's almost a normalization or maybe even the other side becomes more active. And actually, if you swing over to the D scan, um, that side becomes even more active. So if this is an area of our brain that is involved in helping us to put together our sensory experiences and helping us with our thoughts and cognition uh, can be changed by just doing a simple 12 minute a day practice for eight weeks. You really can imagine what's going on in a rabbi's brain, in a nun's brain, in a monk's brain uh, over you know hours a day for, for years and years and years, uh, how that changes the brain and how that changes the way the brain looks at reality, ultimately. Uh, the other finding that we also noticed was increased activity in the frontal lobe. So in the C scan, if you look towards the top, you can see that there's a little bit more of this red activity than what you see at the top of the A scan. Now, again, this is the person at rest. So basically their brain, their frontal lobes have become more active, which suggests that they are able to use those frontal lobes more effectively. And that's exactly what we measured when we measured various psychological and cognitive, uh, uh, using various uh, psychological and cognitive measures, that they had higher levels of concentration and attention. And because the frontal lobes regulate our emotional responses, they had lower levels of anxiety and depression. So to me, this was a very important study, one, really one of the first studies that looked longitudinally at how a particular practice can change the brain over time and has all kinds of implications for both cognitive and emotional health. The other study that I mentioned, the retreat study, looked at individuals undergoing a, a spiritual retreat. It was a one-week, very immersive retreat. There's a... a um, a retreat center that's outside of the Philadelphia area where we're located. And what we did was we scanned their brain at rest. We sent them to the retreat and then we scanned them again coming out of the retreat. And we did a very different kind of scan. This may look like a very weird kind of brain because it is looking primarily at the dopamine and the serotonin areas of the brain. And so you don't really see the cortex areas of the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe because they don't have a lot of dopamine in them but we're looking at some very central structures, what's called the basal ganglia. And what we see here is that there's a significant change in the activity that we're seeing on the scan. Now, so you can see that there's much less red activity, particularly on that right side of the scan, um, in this dopamine area of the brain. 
Now, what we're actually measuring is something called the dopamine transporter. And this drop of activity in the dopamine transporter basically means that the brain has become more sensitized to the effects of dopamine. And we see a similar finding at the bottom uh, two slides. This is actually looking at the serotonin areas, a little harder to see, and I'm not sure how well this is coming across, but again, they had less serotonin transporter binding as well. So they became sensitized to serotonin and sensitized to dopamine. Well, why is this important? One, it shows that by just doing a week of very intensive meditation and prayer and self-reflection, they change the biology of their brain. And dopamine and serotonin, that helps us to understand how religious and spiritual practices may actually help to improve uh, feelings such as depression or anxiety because dopamine and serotonin are very positive emotional neurotransmitters. We give drugs like the SSRIs to augment serotonin levels in the brain as antidepressants. And we certainly know that drugs that cause a release of dopamine in the brain, particularly like cocaine, cause a sense of euphoria. So if their brain has become more sensitized to these neurotransmitters, it should theoretically augment the person's mood and enable them to be more likely to have very intense emotional experiences as part of these practices. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of very interesting clinical relationships which have been observed. So for example, there have been a positive effect of spirituality in the context of uh, church attendance. Uh, the more people tend to go to church or synagogue, they have less anxiety and depression. Um, religious beliefs seem to be protective for depression, anxiety, and suicide, particularly in adolescence. A colleague of mine named Lisa Miller at Columbia University has done some great work looking at the adolescent population and found how religion is protective uh, in that population. Religion and spirituality is often, uh, you know, very, very frequently cited as a form of coping, especially in patients who are dealing with various health-related issues like cancer or heart disease. Uh, and religious activity itself has been associated with redu reductions in physical health problems, including cancer, heart disease, uh, even all-cause mortality as well as reductions in anxiety and depression um, that spiritual practices like meditation and prayer have been associated with the reductions in anxiety and depression. However, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's always the other side and neurotheology itself, um, you know, and, and all of us really need to take, take note of when things don't go quite the way we hope uh, and when there is this negative side of religion and spirituality. So uh, I touched on this a little bit earlier that sometimes people view religion or God very negatively. They may feel that God is punishing them. Um, you know, certainly this comes about a lot when people perhaps lost a, a child or, or lose a spouse. And, uh, you know, to me, um, I think a fascinating neurotheological question is why do some people uh, in those, uh, you know, hours of great angst and despair turn towards God while others turn away from God? It, it, it brings up concepts uh, such as Viktor Frankl's uh, sense of meaning, um, and, uh, and, you know, and how we think about these very difficult situations and how people decide to go in terms of engaging their religious and spiritual selves or turning away from it, or even having it become negative, um, even positive experiences, very intense mystical experiences, uh, have been known to increase anxiety and depression when they can't be incorporated sufficiently, uh, or appropriately into a pervert, uh, into a person's prevailing belief system. 
we have to be careful to, you know, that we don't blame a lack of spirituality for a particular psychological or physical disorder that, oh, you know, I was immoral back in the day. I, you know, did a lot of drugs or I was very promiscuous or whatever. And that's why I now got cancer. That's why I have depression. And of course, you know, when we look around the world today and we talk about things like cults or um, you know, terrorists and so forth that engage in very destructive um, activities because of their religious and spiritual beliefs. Again, very, very important for us to understand what's going on. Why does why does cult why, why does a cult belief or a, a terrorist belief come about within an individual? Why does it sound good to them? Uh, why are they willing to engage in very destructive behaviors in the name of God, for example? Um, so we need to understand that. And I think, you know, to me, the ability to blend what's going on in the brain with these different beliefs and these negative beliefs as well uh, is something that's very important for us to be able to explore. Um, now, again, just uh, trying to finish up a little bit and talking, going back to the rabbi's brain uh, discussion, um, you know, how do those individuals who are deeply religious respond to different spiritual practices? Uh, does it help to explain, can we help to explain differences in practices between believers and non-believers and so forth? Uh, how do we maybe help to improve the spiritual practices that we engage in? Uh, you know, I, one of the um, unique experiences I had when I was giving a presentation at a synagogue, uh, and the rabbi was really uh, fascinated by all of this work, uh, I had just published a book called Words Can Change Your Brain, and it talked about language and how we use language. Um, and one of the things that we learn about that is that when you slow language down, it can become more powerful and more meaningful. So we had we led the congregation in doing the Shema, but we had them do it very, very slowly with each word being spoken with one breath. And, um, and it, you know, so many people came up afterwards and said how, how powerful of an experience it was. So we might be able to actually help us to understand uh, how we might actually be able to change the rituals and the practices we do in a positive way by using this kind of information. And again, hopefully to bring uh, information to light about the relationship between religion and health. Um, so the last couple of scans I want to uh, leave with um, are in our book, uh, The Rabbi's Brain. And uh, this is always my kind of embarrassing moment of the presentation. Um, so while my background is Judaism, uh, I, am, I was raised in a Reformed Jewish uh, household, and uh, my co-author, as I mentioned, was a, a, a gentleman named David Halpern, who is an Orthodox uh, rabbi, and so you know, certainly engages his Judaism to a much greater extent than I do. And uh, what we did was we both got into the MRI scanner, and we, we sang the Shema. And uh, what was uh, embarrassing to me is that um, when I sang the Shema, if you look at my scan on the right, uh, basically not a whole lot happened when you compare my singing of the Shema. We, we compared this to just singing a, a kind of nursery rhyme. I think we were singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, a song that we just all know. Um, but basically what this meant was that when I sing the Shema, it's no different than me singing anything else. But for David, when he sang the Shema, there were a lot of very interesting changes that occur. And hopefully you can see this on the slide that there were areas of increased, which are the orange areas, and actually areas of decreased activity, um, particularly in the frontal lobe. This actually was a very unique finding for uh, practices that part of his frontal lobe went up and part of his frontal lobe went down. So the part that went up was perhaps 
focusing on the singing of the Shema, but the part that went down in many ways was kind of surrendering himself to the whole process. Um, so really a very fascinating uh, result that we get, and we talk about it in the context of other kinds of practices. But uh, again, I'm embarrassed to say that uh, unfortunately my brain didn't do a whole lot. Uh, I was hoping it would do a little bit more. Um, and when we looked at one other area, the amygdala, we can see that David's amygdala turns on because the amygdala lights up. That's our emotional center. It's very powerful. It has great meaning for him. Uh, and unfortunately, even though I do feel strongly about the Shema, apparently wasn't strong enough to get my brain activated in the same way. So we're seeing a very substantial change between someone who is deeply religious and someone who just has you know, a, 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 an important spiritual life, but doesn't necessarily connect in the same exact way. So we have a lot of really interesting possibilities to begin to think about how we compare the people who we're working with, the people that we're talking to, people of different traditions, uh, and how we may be able to think about what's going on in our brain uh, during these different kinds of processes. Uh, I want to leave ultimately with just this idea that there are so many fascinating questions that we can ask. We can we want to ask the questions about what people actually think, believe, feel, experience. Um, but we also then want to think about how they are related to what's going on in the brain. And it is a two-way street. So we can understand, for example, what our beliefs may tell us about the human brain and what our understanding of the brain may tell us about our beliefs. For example, the discussion of free will. Uh, there's been some fascinating research to look at what's going on in the brain when we make choices and a lot of, of fascinating arguments about does this mean that we do or do not have free will when there's activity in the brain that happens before we make decisions. Uh, how do we think about all these questions? And this to me is where neurotheology can, can come in to bring in a new perspective. It doesn't get rid of the theology. It doesn't get rid of sacred texts. It doesn't get rid of the Torah in any way, shape, or form. But those questions that we had, there's a new perspective that we can bring to the table to help us to perhaps engage in these questions in ways that we haven't done before. So in the end, hopefully neurotheology might provide some very interesting epistemological information about how we experience reality. Do we believe in God? Do we believe in a religious reality? Uh, how do we compare different traditions, different people, different cultures? And can this provide knowledge not only about those traditions and cultures, but about the very brain processes that we use to understand the reality around us? And can we use this information to ever figure out what is really real around us? So hopefully with this whole summary, and I've, uh, I know I've covered a lot of ground here, but hopefully uh, it has given you a lot of food for thought and uh, you can start to think about how this may relate to your own beliefs, your own practices, uh, whatever you do in your professional career, um, that neurotheology can be a very important field of scholarship, providing uh, very relevant information, both in the domains of science as well as in religion. Uh, hopefully it helps us to, under, to gain new insights into the brain as it relates to specific belief systems, traditions like Judaism, for example, but to be able to begin to apply this to other traditions. And I'm currently working on a book with a, uh, with a, uh, a Catholic nun uh, about Catholicism. Um, so we really have an opportunity to look at all of these different traditions. And that's uh, where I think you know, some of the new work that I'll be doing will engage as much as possible. And finally, seeking the link between spirituality or religion and health and well-being. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is the book, The Rabbi's Brain. 
which uh, I certainly would encourage you to take a look at if you're interested in these topics and want to see more about our, our questions and what our rabbis had to say, uh, as well as what goes on in the brain during a variety of religious and spiritual uh, rituals as they pertain to Judaism. Uh, and, um, and I should also mention uh, that uh, my most recent book is called Brain Weaver, which is actually a more general uh, book about brain health, but also incorporates the ideas about how we need to think about looking at all the dimensions of the person, the psychological, social, uh, biological, and spiritual dimensions to create the fabric for a healthy mind. So, uh, and of course, uh, for any of you who are interested even broader, more broadly in the topic, uh, you're welcome to go to my website, which is Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And there uh, has information about other books. It has some of the uh, research studies on a lot of the, the scans that I've shown. Um, so any way that you are interested in looking at it, feel free. And you can also correspond with me through that. I'd love to get uh, hear, hear back from people, get feedback, and uh, hear what everyone has to say. I, I think that's the best way to, to push this, all of this work in the field of neurotheology forward. So thank you very much for your attention. And uh, I thank you again for allowing me to come into your uh, conference. Thank you. I'll, I think I have a few minutes for some questions if uh, people have them. Yes, thank you. We have a microphone at the front over here. If everyone has any questions, please come forward so uh, Dr. Newberg can hear you. Hi, Dr. Newberg. Hi there. I have a couple of questions. First, about the scans on mystical experiences, meditation. You, you talked about the loss of sense of self, the oneness. And I'm curious how, if you guys have already started comparing and contrasting those scans to um, scans when people are using substances, when they're sleeping, you know, different activities like that. And, you know, these are other things that people kind of run to. So I'm curious about how you might describe those differences. And then I guess I'll ask my other question after. Um, and also before you go, so you, you were saying uh, the sleeping state, and what was the other ones that you mentioned? The use of substances. So being high. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so that's a great, great question. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, uh, we definitely have begun to look at these kinds of questions. We, in, in neurotheology, I talk a lot about um, the idea of, of looking at many different ways of getting at what these experiences are about. So, for example, um, you know, obviously prayer and meditation are one avenue. Uh, but there are the, the drug-induced experiences and psychedelic experiences, and that's a whole other area of expanding research, which uh, I'm very excited about. Uh, some of my students and colleagues have been engaged in some of this research as well. It's interesting because we know where different drugs go, like psilocybin and LSD. We know that they go to the serotonin system. And then that kind of circles back to, oh, but we saw changes in the serotonin system when somebody engaged in a spiritual retreat program. Um, but then there are other practice, uh, you know, there's other uh, states like near-death experiences, and you mentioned dreaming, um, and certainly other, you know, practices from other traditions. So uh, we are definitely looking at all these different states, all these different uh, ways of looking at the brain and seeing where the overlap is. Uh, you know, another really interesting kind of experience are people who have flow experiences, uh, people, you know, especially even things like athletes, uh, where they get into these different kinds of, you know, into the zone. Um, so, uh, so it's very exciting to think about all these different kinds of states and how they engage the brain. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that's going to be very relevant research for the future. And 
Um, if there are specific areas that uh, that you are interested in, the person who was asking the question, uh, again, you know, feel connect with my uh, website and and happy to talk to you about some of that a little bit more detail. Thank you. I plan to do so. And then um, I believe I've seen scans before about, that were specifically related to speaking in tongues, and I'm wonder. I'm guessing that was research from you. Um, and I'm curious just about not only that practice, but how that might differ from other forms of, you know, prayer. I think there's a difference, but I'm not sure if there's right, a difference yeah. in the um, so, of prayer. Yes. So, I, you know, again, I think a really important uh, aspect of all of this is that depending on what people are doing, depending on how they are engaging a practice, will have different effects on the brain itself. And actually, the speaking in tongue study was, I think, a very important one for us because it allowed us to see uh, different kinds of changes in the brain. In fact, decreases of activity, uh, for example, in the frontal lobe. And that was one of the first studies that got me thinking about the not just the elevation of activity in the frontal lobe, but the decreases that we think are associated with a sense of surrender, uh, a sense of kind of letting go, which are fundamental not only for mental health related issues, but for these actual experiences. And so uh, we've seen this now in other practices like Sufi meditation practices, um, speaking in tongues, and, and, and even in my colleague David Halpern's brain, that part of his brain, part of his frontal lobe went down, whereas parts of his frontal lobe went up. So, uh, you know, all of these practices, uh, in fact, the, some of the articles that I have uh, looked at and, and written um, are looking at a whole model of different parts of the brain that become engaged depending on what a person is doing and depending on whether they're using language or visualization or sounds or movement. Um, and then the kinds of experiences that they have. Some people, uh, you know, have very positive emotions, some have neutral emotions. And so we can expect to see this whole network of structures be involved uh, by looking at, the, at, uh, at these different practices. I see a hand over there. One more question. Sure. Thank you very much, Dr. Newberg. I Thank just you. wanted to ask you if there would be a differentiation between the orthodox rabbi's brain scans and a composer at the peak of writing a great symphony. Would there be a differentiation between those two types of scans? Uh, so uh, you, thank you for that. Yeah, very interesting uh, uh, idea. Uh, you know, we, we have thought about this. And, and again, uh, it also gets back to the other person's question, too, about, you know, other kinds of things that people consider to be spiritual creativity, um, you know, music, art, uh, and so forth. And I, I, the, the short answer is that I think there would be certain similarities and certain differences um, that we would see that, um, that you know, the, the musical part of the brain would become activated. And, uh, and so we might be able to see some very interesting aspects of that. But if a person really feels like they be kind of become one with that process, then we might expect to see similar kinds of changes in the parietal lobe. Uh, now, one of the things that might be different ultimately is the length of time, how long people can do a certain practice, uh, how people can, you know, whether or not they can engage it over longer periods of time. One of the, the, the really nice things about certain meditation practices is that they're so simple 
that you could just kind of keep doing it almost, you know, indefinitely, which could be different than painting a painting. I mean, or, 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 or writing up some music, which has sort of a beginning and an end to it. Um, so again, you know, there's some really interesting possibilities at trying to explore that, but I, it's a, it, these are very, uh, uh, exciting questions for us to be able to think about. And we're trying to design future studies to look at all those different relationships. Thank you very much, Dr. Newberg, and thank you all of you for joining. Thank you. Thanks, for everybody, for, for listening in. Appreciate it. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.